Today's scripture comes to us from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Paul opposes Peter, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in, in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Justified by faith. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to New Creation Fellowship. I want to welcome those of you who may be visiting us for the first or second time at the invitation of a friend, co-worker, guest. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Please join us now as we bow our heads in prayer, asking for God's blessing. Father, we pray that you will enable us to receive all that you desire for us to have this morning. Father, you know that these past few days in this week, we have been bombarded. We have been overwhelmed with many struggles, with many trials, tribulations, and struggles. Lord, we pray now that whatever these things may be weighing on our hearts, busying our minds, that by your spirit, you will enable us to hush these things away. And that even now, as our physical eyes are closed, the eyes of our hearts would always be closed to them and only fixated on the glorious Savior, our Jesus whose name we pray all these things and all God's people together said, Amen and Amen. It seems now, more than ever, that it's becoming quite impossible to avoid politics. For those of you who have a track record of being either uninvolved or uninterested in the political sphere, I'm willing to bet that's becoming harder and harder to do. And it's no real problem to figure out why, because the rippling effects of the decisions of our political leaders are coming into our lives immediately and most often tragically, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those whom we love. And as a result, our negativity contributes to the overwhelming negative consensus that we as a society tend to have to our political leaders. One particular example one of the recurring and constant characteristics that we are always attributing to our political leaders is this negative idea of pandering. Pandering? Oh, you know what that is. It's when our political leaders will say anything, tell us anything, promise us anything that we desperately want them to say to us in the hopes that it would compel us to give them our approval in the form of our votes that will thereby allow them access into the office they're so desperately trying to get into. Now, before I proceed any further, let me begin by first unsettling what some may be unsettled with. Today is not a political sermon. I am not here to preach politics. You see, I've done this long enough to know that I would be wise to stay within the boundaries of my own calling and my own training and political pundancy, political commentary. No, 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 that is not me. However, 
when it does come to addressing the underlying issues that compel politicians to pander. Well, now we're talking about something that falls within the realm of my calling, something that definitely falls within the jurisdiction of my ordination. Because the underlying issues that compel politicians to pander is an underlying issue that every person on this earth struggles with, regardless of how they feel about politics. And so you wonder, what possible commonality could you have with those that you normally conclude you have no commonality with, i.e. politicians? We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Galatians entitled The One True Faith. And today the Apostle Paul is going to address an underlying pervasive ubiquitous problem deeply embedded in the human psyche because it is a problem that every person, no matter where they come from, no matter who they are, struggles with. Doesn't matter what your race, your education, your socioeconomics, your sexual identity may be. It is a problem that every person on this earth struggles with. What is it? It is the fear of rejection. The fear of rejection, or as the scripture refers to it as the fear of man. And in our passage for today, Paul is going to address a specific problem that arises when Christians allow the fear of rejection to rule their life. What problem is that? It causes us to compromise our one true faith. It causes us to compromise the gospel. And if it indeed, the thesis of this series is true, that our faith is truly the one true faith, that means that the consequences of compromising our faith not only endangers the integrity of our Christianity, but actually it endangers the structure and integrity of the world that we live in. Let me show you as we go through three things for today's message. Number one, we're going to talk about the pervasive presence of the fear of rejection. Then we're going to talk about the hopeless poverty of the fear of rejection. And then we're going to end it with the saving power from the fear of rejection, the pervasive presence, the hopeless poverty, and finally the saving power from the fear of rejection. Let's jump right in with the first point, the pervasive presence of the fear of rejection. Read along with me our passage starting in verse 11 down to verse 12, where Paul writes, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Okay, here's what's going on. Paul is retelling us an incident that he had with the apostle peter the apostle peter uh pastor did you just read what we just read i didn't read no peter i found a paul i read a cephas whoever that guy is but where did you get peter oh didn't you know cephas is simply the aramaic of the greek peter who is the name of the hebrew simon confused no just no cephas is peter peter is Cephas. And it turns out Paul has a major issue with the apostle Peter to the point where he says in his own words that I had to confront him to his face, or as we put it in our modern language, he got in his face. And the question is, what's the problem, Paul? Why are you so upset at your fellow apostle? What could you possibly be so offended by that would warrant you to publicly humiliate one of the core leaders of the original disciples of Jesus? Read again at what he says Peter did. Verse 12, he, Peter, drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Hmm. You guys remember this happening to you in middle school? It's lunchtime. You're in the cafeteria eating your food. And lo and behold, emerging out of the line is your best friend from elementary looking for a place to sit. And you're signaling your hand, hey, 
bud, I'm right here, signaling him to sit right next to you. And then the sense of joy surges in your heart. Oh, you get to reconnect. You get to reunite with your best bud. But soon, joy starts to change to confusion. Because as he walks to you, he then proceeds to walk past you and now sits at the table with the cool, the popular. And as your eyes meet for just that millisecond, he quickly looks away as if he doesn't even know you at all. Do you guys remember that pain? You guys remember that feeling? Hold on to it and direct it at the apostle Peter because that's exactly what Peter did. You see, Paul tells us that before the arrival of a certain group that he refers to as the circumcision party, Peter was just having a grand old time with his fellow non-Jewish Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, the Gentile Christians. But the moment these folks known as the circumcision party arrive, all of a sudden he doesn't act like he knows these Gentiles, like he's never met them before. Well, who are you? Who are you, brother? I don't know you. And he doesn't eat with them, whereas a few days prior he was partying it up with them. Why? Why would Peter, who's quite old at this point, act so juvenile, so childish, so middle schoolish, if we could say? Read again at what Paul says at the end of verse 12. What did he do? Fearing Peter, the circumcision party. Peter feared the circumcision party. It turns out Peter was terrified of this group that came in a few days after Peter did. And why was he so afraid? Back up to the beginning of this verse. Why? Because they came from James. They came from James? Wait a minute. Who who is this James? And first of all, what does they came from James even mean? If you recall the last sermon I preached in Galatians, you would remember that James is none other than the half-brother of Jesus Christ himself. And not only, he is also the leader of the Jerusalem church, which is considered the unofficial flagship church of all of Christianity. This is the head honcho of the most significant, the most influential church. And this group, known as the Circumcision Party, were perceived by many to be associates of James. And notice how I said they were perceived to be associates of James rather than known associates of James. Why? Well, if you look at what it actually says in Acts chapter 15, which is the background to this passage, you would come to discover that James doesn't know who these people are. He has no connection with them. He didn't send them. He doesn't know them. He has no sense of connection with these folks whatsoever, which tells us these people known as the circumcision party are flat out lying about their connection to the great apostle James, which if you think about it makes total sense because who exactly are these people known as the circumcision party? Turns out they're the same false teachers that Paul referred to in the first chapter of this book, the Judaizers, people who claim that in order to be a devout Christian, you had to be a faithfully practicing Jew. Hmm. Now, here's the thing. Peter, it seems, was not aware that they were not truly associated with James. For all he knew, he generally felt that they were connected with the great apostle of the leader of the Jerusalem church, evidenced by the fact that he did all that he could to avoid offending these people in the hopes of getting their approval and through their approval, the approval of the brother of Jesus himself. What is that? That, my friends, is the fear of rejection. And because, again, this is Peter, not young, but old man Peter, Peter who is seasoned, Peter who's experienced, what does this tell us? Tells us that the fear of rejection, it's not a childish problem. It's a pervasive 
problem. The fear of rejection is not a childish problem. It is a pervasive problem, a problem that stays with you the longer you're on this earth. Consider these words from Christian counselor and theologian Ed Welch when he writes this, quote, Do you notice how you act differently when someone is watching versus when you think you're alone? Peer pressure is the old name for this phenomenon. Peer pressure usually means that the influence of friends or others is so strong that you wind up doing things you normally wouldn't do to gain acceptance. Using drugs is the classic example, but you could broaden peer pressure to include anything you would do with your friends, but not if a parent, authority figure, or God were present. Here is something to keep in mind. If you glance into the future, you will see that this problem doesn't fade with time. In fact, if you don't do anything with it now, it gets worse. Mothers are always comparing themselves to other mothers and feeling inferior. Men are always jockeying for prestige and significance. Unchecked, it continues until the day you die, end quote. The fear of rejection is not confined to your middle school building. It's also found in your universities. It's also found in your workplace. It's also found in your families. It's even also found in your churches. Hmm. It's found in your churches. This is a pervasive problem, which means regardless of what you may think, regardless of what you may say, the fear of rejection is a real problem for every single one of you. Now, I know you could defend yourself and be like, speak for yourself, PJ. I don't have the fear of rejection. Maybe that brother does. That sister does. That dude definitely does. But certainly not me. I don't struggle with the fear of rejection at all. Who do you think you're talking to, man? Oh, really? Well, let me ask you a question, a math question of sorts that comes in a certain particular formula. Can we have it up here? My self-worth equals my performance plus the evaluation of my performance. My self-worth, my sense of personal value equals my performance plus the evaluation of my performance. This comes from Robert McGee's excellent book, The Search for Significance. And I find it very, very helpful because I find it to be very, very accurate because what he's saying is that all of us, in order for us to have any sense of self-worth, any sense of, of, of personal value, which by the way, we all have, otherwise none of us would, keep living because we wouldn't want to live because that is true. That is basically determined by two things, my performance and the evaluation of my performance. This is how we have our sense of worth. And if you consider your life, honestly, you find that you've been living by this formula your whole life. Whether you consider yourself an ambitious or unambitious person, an overachiever, an underachiever, a winner, a loser, a social butterfly, or a loner, all of these characteristics are simply variable permutations of the combination of simply your performance and the evaluation of that very performance itself. Now, I'll grant that there are some of you who generally don't care what certain types of people think of you, the types that other people might really care about, whether it be a professor a parent, a person in charge at work, a partner of life. But that doesn't mean that you don't live by the evaluations of another. It does not mean that you are not being driven and consumed of getting high marks from an evaluator. You know, one unrecognized common, however, evaluator that many of us live by is ourselves, where the criticism that we dread hearing and the standards that we are terrified of violating is our own criticism and our own standards. 
You see, the fear of self-rejection, my friends, is still a fear of rejection, and it's still very, very bad. Now, you hear that, and you're thinking to yourself, how is that possible? Because, Pastor, couldn't you argue, you know, that this kind of fear is healthy? That this kind of fear can get you off your rear end, motivate you, and get you to achieve and to accomplish and to do things that's good for yourself and for those around you? Well, Paul would say, if you consider yourself a genuine follower of Jesus, the answer is absolutely no. And to explain why he would say that, I go to my next point, the hopeless poverty of the fear of rejection. Have our passage back up again, please. Starting in verse 12 to the first half of 14, Paul writes, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, okay, pause it right there, your attention. Here, Paul identifies what happens, Christian, when you permit yourself to falling under the spell of the fear of rejection. What happens? Dun, dun, dun. Are you ready? You walk out of step with the truth of the gospel. You're like, what? <laughs> That's it? Because the way Paul is framing, the way he's arguing, it almost sounds like you're expecting something very catastrophic, very apocalyptic. And then when I tell you what his concern is, you're just like, uh, okay, so what? <laughs> why is that a big deal? Why is being out of step with the truth of the God? Why is that a problem? Look again at what he says in 13 that results when you're out of step with the gospel. What does he say? And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You ever been called a hypocrite, Christian? You remember how you felt? I would venture to guess that if you are a genuine follower, it felt pretty bad. Probably to the equivalent of a black person being called the N-word by a non-black person. Or the equivalent of an Asian person being called the C-word by a non-Asian Or a gay and lesbian being called the F-word by a non-gay lesbian person. The H-word for us Christians, that burns. At least it should. Why? Because our own Jesus, our Lord and Master, reserved that terminology for people that he especially reviled and was revolted by. Jesus, our Lord, hates hypocrites. And guess what? So does the rest of the world. Back in 2017, the UK newspaper, The Guardian, came out with an article that begins with these words. Listen to what it says, quote, no one likes a hypocrite, but when you stop to think about it, it's strange how much we despise them. Sure, it's bad not to practice what you preach, but at least you're still preaching. If I'm constantly talking about the importance of humane farming, I'm promoting a worthy message, even if you'll also find me scarfing dubious burgers from some van in an alley every Saturday. Surely that's better than nothing. Well... No, both research and experience tells us it's worse than nothing. We dislike hypocrites more than people who are straightforwardly awful. There's a depressing lesson here for politicians, among others, reflected in recent events. If you can't be perfectly moral, and who can, you might do better in simply acting like a monster. (laughs) Turns out this article, which is citing a research that was recently done at Yale University, according to this Yale research, More people hate thieves and liars who deny their thievery, who deny their deception, more than those who just simply steal and lie. 
In other words, people hate hypocrites than those who simply commit those very sins hypocrites do, but don't lie about it. You're like, how is that even possible? What is so unique, so set apart of our hypocrisy that our world seems to agree with Jesus to where it says it's so vulgar, so evil? Well, take a listen to the studiers in their own words in their op-ed version of the New York Times where they wrote this. The principal offense of a hypocrite is not that he violates his own principles, but rather that his use of moral proclamations falsely implies that he himself behaves morally. This idea makes sense if you think about moral condemnation not as a tool for reproaching others, but as a way to boast your own reputation. We contend that the reason people dislike hypocrites is that their outspoken moralizing falsely signals their own virtue. People object, in other words, to the misleading implication, not to a failure of will or a weakness of character, end quote. What's it saying? It's saying people hate hypocrites not because they fail to live up to their own standards, but because of the negative effects their hypocrisy has on other people. And what are the negative effects that this article, this research is saying, has on other people? People feel duped. They feel conned. They feel misled. Friends, I hope this hasn't happened, but let me ask, have you ever been conned? Has someone you love been misled? Have you ever been duped? If you have, then you know what the underlying prerequisite requires in order for you to get there. Hope, right? What's hope? Hope is believing something is true. And when I say something, I don't mean anything. I mean something that is beautiful, something that is noble, something that is important, something that is inspiring, something that is filled with integrity, something that if you have it, makes you feel like a worthy person, something that makes you feel like you have value, that you are justified to exist in the very skin that you live in. That is hope. And it's that very hope that gets shattered by the hypocrite when they're Hypocrisy is revealed to the world because what the underlying message of the hypocrite is, aside from just condemning people, is this assumption that you could be where I'm at. You could become a person of importance. You can be a person of inspiration. You can be a person of integrity. Just follow me. Listen to my preaching. The reason why people hate hypocrites more than any other person is because they shatter the hope that a person could have real self-worth, real personal value. All that is left is the sense of inner poverty that leaves you with a sense of low self-worth, low self-value. This is why Paul got in Peter's face, because he could see what Peter was doing to these Gentiles. By refusing to eat with them, he was indirectly conveying to them, you can get to where I am along with these false teachers if you abide, if you follow the expectations that we have that you must follow. You see? Now, let's stop and just linger for just a moment. Consider what's happening here. This is the Apostle Peter. This isn't some, you know, fresh spiritually green Christian who is just being led by his naivete. This is not some young maverick who by his spiritual or physical youth getting carried away into folly. This is a man who should know better. A man who've walked with Jesus, who has led the disciples, who has carried the gospel message and has been given the apostolic authority of God himself. And yet 
Here he is falling into hypocrisy. Why? Because he's being ruled by the fear of rejection. Do you know what that means, Christian? It means no matter what your title might be here in this ministry, it doesn't matter how much you've read the Bible. It doesn't matter if you went to seminary. It doesn't matter if you can read Greek and Hebrew and parse out scripture. It doesn't matter if you're an Oikos group leader, if you're a D board member or pastor. Any one of us can fall into the sin of hypocrisy because all of us are susceptible to the fear of rejection. And the moment you minimize, the moment you think that this is not a clear and present danger for you is the moment you fall into real danger to where you do stupid things such as hypocrisy, but something even more foolish than that, which is what Paul says, walking out of step with the truth of the gospel. There it is again. But now, we can now address and understand what he means by that. And to do so, we go to the final point, the saving power from the fear of rejection. As I said, when you are out of step with the truth of the gospel, you will end up like Peter. You will be like a false teacher. You will fall into hypocrisy, but you will even do something more stupid than that. You will compromise your faith. You will walk out of step. Now let's ask, what does that really mean? Can we have that? formula up there that we had a moment ago please my self-worth as i said a moment ago equals my performance plus the evaluation of my performance according to this fact of life in order for you to have any sense of high value of yourself is contingent upon the summation of two things your performance and the evaluation of that performance which means if you want to have high value in yourself if you want to have a high sense of worth in yourself You need to have high performance and you need high evaluation, okay? You need both of these things. Otherwise, what happens? You get rejected. I mean, don't we see this happening all the time in the various spheres of life that we are in? Whether you're talking about work or whether you're talking about marriage, why do people get rejected either as employees or as spouses? Isn't it because their performance in the workplace, in the home is subpar and therefore their evaluators, their boss, their spouses also evaluate them so low that results in them being rejected? Yes, indeed. We come to find that the fear of rejection really is the fear of having low self-value. The fear of rejection is really the fear of low self-value. Because by having low self-value, that makes you inherently a reject. Someone that is inherently unacceptable. Someone whose very existence is unacceptable. So, putting all this together, what does this tell us? It tells us the only way you can get rid of the fear of rejection is that you need to have simply two things. You need to perform high and you need to have high evaluations. Simple, right? (laughs) Now, something I want to draw your attention to that maybe you have not caught as you looked at this formula, as you studied it, and that is the evaluation part is pretty important. In fact, actually, it becomes the hinge because think about it. How do you know whether or not your performance was good enough to where you have high self-worth? Let me put it this way. How can you know whether or not... Your value, your performance, excuse me, your performance, your work, your, your attempts to justify yourself is truly justified and warranted to where you are acceptable if your evaluator 
let's say, is incredible, is not credible, not incredible, but not credible. What would you do if you're in a situation where the person that you would depend on, look to, to evaluate and legitimize and validate and justify your performance as being high has no credibility of themselves, has no authority in their evaluations of your performance? Do you see the problem? We're kind of seeing this in our society today. You know, people get invited to the White House usually have the same caliber characteristic of being high performers, whether they're championship winners, whether they're Olympians, Nobel Prize winners, people who've performed up to par. And yet what we're seeing in our day and age in this administration is people who get invited decline it, whereas they would never have dreamed of doing that with the previous administration. (laughs) Why? Because in their minds, the person who is evaluating them, our current sitting president, his evaluation has no value, no credibility. Ah, now we're coming to understand something. In order for you to have high value, according to this formula, it is ultimately determined by the credibility of your evaluator. If your evaluator doesn't have real credibility, let's say because they're hypocrites, then what does that result in? It leaves you in a perpetual state of uncertainty on whether or not you've actually done enough, right? You're always going to be uncertain. Have I done enough? No matter how hard you perform, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you strive, you will always feel this unsettledness by thinking, have I really done enough? Have I really met the standard? Have I really got to it? You see, your performance, the, the value of it is blind until you have someone who can validate it, someone who can justify it. And Scripture says, the only person who could do that is God. The only person who has credibility, the only person who has authority to where his evaluation of you is true, is significant, is God himself. Read again what he says in verse 15. He writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What's Paul saying? He's saying, in a nutshell, the only way you can avoid hypocrisy, the only way you can overcome the uncertainty of whether you're good enough, the only way you can overcome the fear of rejection is by believing the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? For the sake of time, let me tell you Paul's version of his formula to life when he says this. My self-worth equals Christ's performance on my behalf plus the Father's evaluation of Christ's performance. For the Christian, the source of our value, the source of our worth is equal to Christ's performance on my behalf plus the Father's evaluation of Christ's performance on my behalf. This is the gospel. This is how you're able to have any sense of worth, any sense of value in any way. The only person who's able to be authorized and credible in evaluating us to give us a stable sense of self-worth is God, specifically God the Father. And notice how I said stable sense of self-worth because even if you think that there are other forms of evaluators out there that can give you some sense of stability, they will never be able to give you the same level of stability 
as only God can. Let me give you an example. You know, one evaluator that our society tends to always look to, to a source of personal value and worth is the government, whether it be in the form of legal rights, whether it be in the form of legal recognition, whether it be legal protection, more and more people are looking to the government to give them some sense of evaluation positively that will give them a sense of justification for who they are. This is who I am because the law says so. My government gives me this law, and therefore I now have status. Therefore, therefore, if you don't accept it, I will sue you. (laughs) But as history has shown, government's not that stable. It gets pretty unstable every election cycle, doesn't it? To where what's acceptable four years ago becomes unacceptable now. What becomes unacceptable now becomes acceptable again. There's such chaos. There's such instability. However, if the person who is evaluating you never changes, who is the same beginning and end, who is alpha and omega, who is perfect, from the moment history began and will be perfect for all of eternity. Now you have a sense of worth that could never be altered in any way, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, no matter who's in charge immediately, because there is one in charge ultimately who is perfect. God is perfect. And and speaking of God being perfect, that means that when he evaluates you, by the way, he's going to evaluate you by the standard of perfection. But there's a problem. Who in their right mind in this room or any on this earth could ever think that they're perfect? Paul makes it clear that's not the route you want to go. Read again what he says in verse 16. By works of the law, no one, no one will be justified. No one will be justified. In other words, if you and I want to have a sense of worth and value that is sustained, that is permanent, by an evaluator who is perfect and judges by standards of perfection, you need to depend on someone who's willing to perform on your behalf. Someone who is capable of perfect performance. And we all know who that is. It's Jesus Christ. That's why God the Son came into the world as Jesus, so that he could perfectly perform on your behalf, perfectly obeying God that you can never do, perfectly paying the full ransom of the cost of your sins you could never survive and overcome by dying on the cross being perfectly vindicated from your sins by rising again from the dead. It is only through Jesus that you could have the performance that you need so that the evaluation of that performance will result in you coming out as being a person of high worth, high value. Even if the world rejects you, even if your parents reject you, even if your children reject you, even if your church rejects you. Because you have the positive affirmation, evaluating approval of God's love through Jesus, the fear of rejection is no more. Do you see? The fear of rejection. What happens to a person when they're confined with the fear of rejection? Well, what people normally do when they're afraid. They either run or they rumble. They fight or they flight. The same is true with the fear of rejection. We see it all the time in our society. When people are terrified by the fear of rejection, what do they do? They'll either isolate themselves, be antisocial, never interact, never interface. And as a result, they avoid any terms of sociability that even includes solving the problems that they could be a part of solving. Or they get aggressive. 
and they build coalitions, and they build social networking in such a way that they would get approval, whether it's legalized at the Supreme Court or in the court of public approval. But either way, that problem leads you to the same issue. You're so fixated on getting recognized, of getting rights, that you're too busy ever being concerned or even having time for ever addressing real problems that the world needs fixed. No, the only problem solvers of the world that really make an impact are those who have been free from the true fear of rejection. And the only person that is capable of doing that is the one who is in Christ. Do you now understand, Christian, that the fear of rejection not only compromises your Christianity, but it compromises the world? Because you have been so preoccupied of either isolating yourself in the hopes of never feeling rejection ever again, or you try and build some sort of artificial form of validation that is pretty just veneer, and you're so busy doing that that, again, the problems still go unsolved. But it is the Christian who has that sense of gospel security, gospel self-worth, gospel personal value that can actually start thinking about the problems because they've forgotten about themselves because God is already thinking of them and he thinks of them with such approval, with such affection, with such love. That is how we overcome the fear of rejection. And that is what this world needs from us more than any other. But here's my question. Have you overcome the fear of rejection? I'm a work in progress. I imagine you are too. But the good news is that God is working in us. He is working through us. And if you constantly cling to Christ, and if you constantly depend on Christ, this community becomes an outlet. It becomes a means of being a force of solving the real problems of this world because it points to the one who has solved the biggest problem of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your hope, the world's hope. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand the message that we just heard. Father, even as it comes out of my mouth, I am confronted, I am convicted of my own failure of believing it myself. Father, it manifests in my own fears of being rejected, my own sense of falling into hypocrisy. Father, forgive us for our failure. For even like your servant Peter, we are guilty of falling into this folly all the time. Father, would you, for the sake of this world, for the sake of our city, help us to overcome this fear by constantly remembering the great perfect performance of Jesus and your positive affirming evaluation of his performance on our behalf so that we can go boldly, we can go courageously, and we can go eyes wide open in attacking the problems of this world that through your power and grace working in us, we can solve for your glory and for the people good, the people, the good of the people here. Father, we just pray for your grace and mercy to be upon us. We pray that NCF would truly be an agent of change and hope. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.